Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 25, the fifth of our six interviews from this year's NZIA in situ conference. Today we're talking to Tina Grigorich and Alyosha Dekleva, who are based in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Tina and Alyosha's work is unique, it's enigmatic and varied. Their talk covered works both built and imagined, and yet still found time to clearly discuss their ideas and ideology. After proving the stereotype that everyone in New Zealand knows everyone else, shout out to our friend Jamie McClellan, we started our discussion. So, so thank you so much for um, joining, joining us today on uh, on the podcast. We really, really enjoyed your um, talk uh, earlier. It was um, really interesting, particularly at the end, sort of taking a deep dive into <laughs> other areas from wine tasting in space to what it might be like to be Three-dimensional sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was um, exciting. Uh, you work um, in partnership. Can you talk a little bit about um, the way that you work um, um, do you have specific roles in terms of the way that you approach design or is it quite collaborative? I would say it's quite collaborative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't actually always mean to have an office together. Mm-hmm. Um, we did go to study together in London, but we didn't want to join forces for on this creative basis. But when we, we started to work on a very small project of, for a family house, then we realized that we could uh, somehow work collaboratively. And since we started on that small project, we, we were not actually distributing different roles. Um, but yes, we do conceive all the projects together and then we kind of let each of us to lead the project into the next stages uh, so we somehow distribute the responsibility, I guess. No? Mm. I think it's quite nice to run an architectural practice in, uh, as a couple mm. because you actually develop ideas uh, through conversation. Mm. So, in a way, it's a pretty much different dynamics as uh, a person would do it on, on, uh, on, on its own, mm-hmm. um, where everything that pops to your mind or whatever you are developing with your own thinking, and thinking in general, it is a very individual process, right? Mm-hmm. But as soon as you kind of put your own thinking into a conversation, mm-hmm. the whole dynamics hits like a new road. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is an advantage of what... Um, of what we have as a, as a couple, because we are absolutely not the same. I mean, sometimes we are the opposites. I'm interested well, in Most the of the times we are the opposites. Yeah, I, I'd be really interested to hear in the things you don't have the common ground on architecturally and, and how those things come into projects and what do you do with that mm. to yeah. find the solution you get to. But Well, uh, speaking about common ground, I think it helps us that we are, uh, in a way... Um, our backgrounds are in a way kind of similar, uh, or how do you say that? Um, you know, the view of the world and the values we have towards life, mm. we kind of share that. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that's a basis uh, for our collaboration in a way. You know? mm. But still, two very different minds, and then of course it's a female side and a male side, and that already creates an interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, perspective to, mm-hmm. dif- to, to, to different things, uh, but in a way, this is the beautiful thing that you can start. I mean, there is a necessity for a common ground in order to make it work, but then the differences make it interesting and uh, maybe going further than just 
simply sharing the common ground, right? Yeah, because we have very different sensitivities, and since we we really believe that we have to do enormous amount of research before even mm. trying to design the mm. first idea or the first potential lead to the concept, we we see in each of these kind of project, potential projects or each of the constraints different potentials. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we, you know, I would propose to go in that direction and then Lyosha would propose to go completely different direction and then, but we also, we are also not alone even though we have a very small office, let's say about 10 people. We usually, and we have one partner, uh, but we usually kind of do a group of, of people who are creatively working on one competition or one small house or, you know, so basically it's not just the two of us. So mm -hmm. basically usually we have many different positions and then we try to somehow see what's the core of it and therefore it's all the time a different somehow solution or output. But yes, we are super stubborn, each of us, <laughs> and really, uh, and then we fight uh, for our thoughts. Mm -hmm. But I think the, it's the power of the argument of how strong mm -hmm. each of mm -hmm. the leads could be that actually goes to another. But usually we, we never compete the two concepts because we don't deliver final mm -hmm. formal decisions. We just kind of deliver first steps in which to go and then we usually produce the third step. Mm -hmm. So basically it's not like competing one idea towards the other. We right. never kind of sketch, okay, this is my proposal and this is yeah. another proposal. But it's like, mm -hmm. shall we go that way? Do you think this, I don't know, the topography is a way to explore mm -hmm. an issue? Or do you think, you know, which kind of material would be interesting to work with mm -hmm. and why and then through that so we kind of you know gradually develop mm -hmm. um, the project well our lives are pretty much intense mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, can, you can imagine but an, another benefit of that is that uh, we are questioning everything all the time mm -hmm. so you never find yourself in a situation of uh, taking anything for obvious. Mm. There is always a counterpart that is questioning that mm -hmm. first position. So I think that makes it uh, also quite different. There's a constant dialogue, yeah. isn't there? And I guess that becomes a means of testing ideas and, mm. and perhaps at arriving at a more robust decision in, mm. in the end. <laughs> I was interested in what you touched on um, uh, just then about um, choosing a direction or perhaps a generator for a project because I I think it's really fascinating to look at your work and to see quite different um, expressions mm -hmm. um, throughout the work. Do you um, decide on a kind of a lead generator, whether it be um, topography or materiality, or uh, you know, are there common themes through your work? How do you kind of arrive at a starting point? Yeah, we, we start each project. Um, with the questions and with research, first researching the site, the place, the immediate, the kind of micro location, but then of course all the layers which are hidden, the the history, the culture which is behind. We we like to go very in depth and to actually bring out the stories of the site. Mm. Let's say we did a collective housing which we were not showing, which is actually which is using this kind of yellowish brick facade because it was on a former brickyard mm. and while digging the ground we realized it was the yellowish 
color. So we really wanted to build up the whole identity of the new housing uh, on the ground, on the story of what it was there, um, and also to link it with the with the chromatics of the the soil which was there. So basically, um, we have this strong uh, principle that we that we think the architecture it's really a material obsessed and it should be uh, discipline and we each time we try to define the materiality of the project very very early so even before we we know the spatial response or the urban response um, we know what kind of material or constructive or the material for kind of the envelope we would be like to develop that project with and then since since each material has certain properties and certain potentials um, or restrictions it may lead you to other uh, results mm. so be, we are never designing the form and then kind of wrapping yeah. it up mm. with an envelope mm. of a color or material or whatever but we are trying to gradually develop it through knowing the material mm-hmm. uh, why exactly you talk uh, about monomateriality which is not a term I've, I've really heard and it's this wonderful idea it's important to you yeah why why is it important because so at least from a New Zealand perspective and maybe this is shared you know we're taught so much about the importance of pushing into exploring materials and their variety and how to put them together to complement and contrast one another mm-hmm. and monomateriality is the opposite of that I mean I was so struck by the image in the cast house with the stone mm-hmm. downpipes mm-hmm. that was just amazing um, mm-hmm. This is an important idea to you. What does it offer you that variety doesn't? Well, uh, limitations quite often generate much more interesting uh, developments in ideas and designs. You like the constraint that mm-hmm. can so give. With, with the constraint, you somehow get uh, further in mm. terms of being conceptually clean, clear, yeah. and at the end, consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, with a result that uh, presents itself in the same clearness mm-hmm. of uh, what the message is or what the mm-hmm. story is that we were we were speaking about the stories the whole the whole day today. Mm. Um, but yes, I think the monomateriality somehow derives from our um, heritage, where I was, for instance, born and raised up, where the stone was practically everything. Yeah. Uh, to architecture uh-huh. uh, and there I mean this is not a very this uh, the place where uh, where, where I was um, uh, raised up is not the only place in the world where the stone kind of prevails in terms mm-hmm. of how you build things there are other places as well no which which could generate uh, similar ideas but yeah monomateriality comes out of the environment that uh, we are living in no? and then you take it uh, further on through your uh, design decisions and thinking of how you actually create architecture which is haptical at the end yes so you know I, I immediately think of the timber heritage in Japan mm-hmm. that generates a method of jointing 
it's very much precisely. about yeah. specifically about how timber comes mm. together and precisely. stone will do the same thing mm. steel will do the same kind mm. of so thing. it's not only about the material but it's about the joining of the yeah. material which we like to expose we yeah. like to expose the technique that mm. we are employing in order to use that monomateriality monomateriality is not like a mantra for mm. all our project yeah. but it's only used in those places where there is certain cultural or heritage reference that it's relevant and we would we wanted to build upon that idea is this monomaterial concept still possible today even though we could not we had to translate an understanding of the stone into the concrete let's say but also in the project of uh, chimney house uh-huh. um, where actually it relates to the old barns which officially or historically they all the, the also the roof was actually out of um, wood no and then only slowly the roof became something else and only the facade of the barn remained the wood so we wanted to go back in order to somehow understand where this all started and how we can kind of rethink it uh, today but not all of our projects are monomaterial mm, but I, th- I think the the question is uh, quite interesting and relevant because if you think um, monomateriality is a constraint it actually trains you to be very skilled in figuring out everything yeah. throughout material yeah. so you have to be very disciplined in what you are uh, what kind of decisions you are taking because you have only this material and even though it starts from stone in our context uh, you can apply the same rigorousness in discipline to any other materials yes. that you decide to work with mm. because it's teaching you an exploratory technique yeah. the first thing I think of is my Lego set when mm-hmm. I was a kid mm-hmm. and it wasn't a very varied Lego set then. Yeah. it was a very f- small number of blocks and it forced you to explore all of the ways you could make form mm-hmm. out of those mm-hmm. yeah. and it's an attitude or an approach to exploring a material so I can mm-hmm. I can I haven't had these experiences but I can relate to what yeah, you're yeah. saying it, it's forcing you to investigate every avenue mm-hmm. and learn everything you can. And what you just mentioned before, that a set of very strict constraints, it's kind of excelling the creativity. Mm -hmm. And we were fortunate enough that our first project, which was this kind of XX house, which is 43 square meter house in a super dense and heritage protected environment as part of the city center of Ljubljana, it had so many codes, Mm -hmm. so many constraints, you know, heritage protection, um, volume definition, materials that we should be using and so on, that our first project was to against all the constraints or to somehow incorporate them and actually kind of rethink the what's allowed so we we developed a new uh, typology of this kind of uh, three-dimensional um, let's say window that we developed on the on the roof which is not allowed otherwise and so on and we also tested it with many times with our students that the more constraints we give them in the task the more radically mm. they are there answers are mm. and and so you're both also involved in teaching and I gather have taught at a number of different schools throughout Europe how do you find that balance between teaching and practice yeah I think it's uh, quite challenging uh, now I'm for 
five years a full professor in Vienna, mm. which is like 400 kilometers away from Ljubljana. It's different culture. Austria mm. is like a, a new territory. It's a really large city, also a very large school. Um, but it provides me um, this other part, no? um, like an environment in which I could, of course, bring all the qualities or the knowledge um, that I could teach the students, but also I could test with them certain things that we cannot uh, within the practice. But it's hard, so whenever I travel, usually I travel weekly or every second week. Uh, for the two or three days that I'm in Vienna, I'm like 90%, I somehow close the office part, mm-hmm. um, only if it's really urgent, and then I only focus uh, to teaching, and then I become back. But then it becomes a problem, because Alyosha is guest professor. He was just now in Germany, and then before in Paris, and in Montreal. <laughs> so then we have to somehow uh, connect the schedules, and yeah. Well, teaching at the same time, it's also an opportunity for me to learn. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think it goes both ways, no? yeah. uh, which is a time for experimentation. I mean, mm. quite often we can't afford to be very experimental in what we do in our office, mm. although this is what we are striving for, uh, for all of the time. But um, in a teaching situation, especially when you do something um, a little bit distant from what the traditional architectural schools would do uh, with their traditional curriculums, but you go off these charts Mm. in a bit more experimental way of um, teaching what architecture is, Mm. uh, especially through uh, the process of thinking, Mm. uh, not so much designing, like beyond design, uh, there is an opportunity for for us to advance together with uh, Mm. students, simply allowing ourselves uh, for uh, failure and without failure you can't really make any progression right? Yeah, no, I think that's very true I, mean, I know Arch has um, done a bit of teaching and um, I've, I've sort of moonlighted a little bit in that area and I think one of the things I always found was that um, uh, anytime you sort of step away from practice it, it sort of each informs the other to a certain mm-hmm. extent, that distance is actually quite helpful sometimes at then coming back fresh at at problems again. I don't think I really understood what I thought about architecture until I started teaching. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then it solidified. Mm-hmm. Um, there's real um, there's real parallels between your home country and New Zealand that mm-hmm. I picked up today. You know, the city sizes are about the mm-hmm. same. You, you know, you talked about the, the prevalence of the home as the, the dominant means mm-hmm. of the built environment and the, the half the country covered in forests, so mm-hmm. a timber building tradition. Um, and you have these connections to New Zealand and things like that. Have you ever imagined what it might be like to build here and what that outcome might be like? I mean, I was thinking quite like in the past two days, I was definitely thinking about, but it also helped to all these um, very uh, similarities that you just mentioned mm. with Slovenia. Um, I think we also could privilege of thinking how to build here because of our knowledge yes. of Hawaii. Yeah. Yes. Because okay. actually, uh, when we landed uh, in here, no, I mean, we, of course, with pictures and all what we could get through internet or by, by stories, through stories from Jamie and so so on, we we did picture this picturesque environment, but it also with the cultural of Polynesia, yeah, yeah. The, the the sheer forests of Pacific. Mm. 
it, it has, you know, the notion that we we know what are relationships and what's the force of the wind, yeah. which is really really important. Um, and also the the I think the greenery it's very very different. It's very similar to more similar to Hawaii than it is to our uh, country. So to, to this it would be super interesting to do an experiment yeah. and actually design design a house here. But we are really looking forward to try to see some of the other houses designed by uh, New Zealand architects uh-huh. because we are really we we are kind of uh, like to explore um, and, and and really experience architecture in one to one because yeah. we don't believe that you can actually learn um, um, from either from the from the images on the web neither yeah. from the books it's not enough you have to see how it performs within the landscape but also how it what's the effect it gives on you so yeah that would be that would be super interesting to do <laughs> do you have a bit of time to um, while you're here to, to explore <laughs> Well, uh, starting any project anywhere, uh, the first step is to learn. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you can't really propose something if you don't understand what you are uh, tackling with and where you are actually finding yourself with, uh, with a possible uh, interaction. So I think this kind of learning process is uh, very much important to any project. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter whether you are making it uh, next door from where you're living or you're making it on the other side of the world. But it's true that we deliberately never did any competitions in the countries that we didn't understand the culture or we have never been there. So we never did competitions in in Asia or, um, I don't know, Dubai or all these countries because we don't know the culture enough, we don't know the climate enough, we don't feel close enough to understand it on that depth that we would feel responsible to be able to respond to it. But yes, with New Zealand, with all this notion of our country and Hawaii, we think we might but you start it. with learning. Like, Precisely. And yeah. so this is almost a, like it might be disrespectful. Precisely. To, to, it's almost a colonial act yeah, yeah. to impose no, so before you learn and before you understand. I think uh, every architect, before it starts to even think about the project, has to, uh, in a way, embed the, the, the place, the sense of place. And that's, in essence, what we were... Um, Discussing and being part of the the traditional welcoming yes. procedure at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of um, uh, a lot of people were speaking about the sense of place. Yes, uh, and I think that's crucial uh, in order to really uh, intervene in a way that actually you work together with what is already here. Yeah, even though those things are not kind of visible on the first sight. Yes. Mm. Um, and, and another thing which is super important, and we are losing it with uh, proliferate mobility, is the sense of arrival. Uh-huh. Um, and we've learned that uh, last year on uh, on Maui uh, and uh, in Honolulu, uh, because right now, I mean, even even this time, we kind of flew in from uh, Hong Kong, so it's kind of first 
well, Ljubljana, Zürich, Hong Kong, yeah. <laughs> Auckland, <laughs> you know, you're kind of being thrown into yeah. environments yeah. that you first... And climates uh, and time yeah. zones. You and face them yeah. and then you start to kind of uh, learn in a way, uh, almost as a reverse engineering, uh, how you become part of this place. But if you imagine how people were traveling before uh, airplanes were, you know, the common uh, thing to, to use for travels, you could actually uh, prepare yourself before coming to a certain place, uh, purely to, to, to travel the distance that it's um, necessary to, uh, to go through just simply to reach New Zealand. I think that kind of moment is missing and you have to somehow get it back somewhere. No? The sense of arrival is super important as well mm. when you want to intervene somewhere. But yeah. you know when we got it, we did a funny kind of um, family trip that we took our Volvo with a tent on top and we traveled to Morocco. Uh -huh. So basically we traveled through Italy, France, then southern Spain, which is already kind of Arabic, and then mm. over the Stopping in Tenerife just yeah. for uh, three nights, looking at Africa yeah. just to anticipate yeah. right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then uh, arriving there. And that yeah. was very, very different to any hour of flying, you know, travels. Yeah. But it's because true. you, because the, the, the speed at which the things around yeah. you change, yeah, mm. to see it do that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of right. course. And then uh, being in the south of Spain, you basically slowly embrace the Arabic culture mm -hmm. because it's so intertwined it was historically and then you you move over but it's true that actually we became very very sensitive about that when we got this kind of commission to design the house on Maui because we didn't dare to do a sketch before we traveled there mm -hmm. and they, they we, we just said to them you know we we can think about but we we are we cannot do anything until we really get the sense of the place and then we, it took us like you know like Alto was treating the, the places in which he designed things he spent enormous amount of time on each of those sites and the plots uh, over the course of 24 hours in different like morning evening and I think this kind of slowliness of understanding a place would need to be kind of embedded before you try to design or yeah. respond. So if we ever get a chance to build in New Zealand, I would like to come to New Zealand with a sailboat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what a way to appreciate your yeah. arrival. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's a very different thing arriving by boat. I mean, I would, I've always thought that actually the way to travel around the Mediterranean would be by boat. It was the way that it was traditionally traveled. And your approach by sea to a city is entirely different from being thrust into it by air plane or coming you know on a motorway or, or mm -hmm. something as well um so yeah it sounds delightful it might take you a while though <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> yeah i think we're, we're almost out of time yeah. i wonder if just um maybe one last question yeah um why do you why do your clients come to you pardon? why do your clients come to you why do they choose you well, that would be a question for them. <laughs> They're very, very, very personal, uh, very, very specific reason. Each one has a very, very specific but story. But I think we, we can't really relate to them as clients. Those ones, do they come to us? Mm. 
they are either our friends mm. or they are or they become or they friends, become friends oh. through the process of yeah. doing a piece of architecture mm. together but that's kind of I mean in, term, in our case this is kind of limited to the more or less individual uh, homes and housing all the big projects we are uh, just kind of simply getting through uh, public competitions wow. and those clients they don't kind of come choose to us, us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. is that we are deciding whether we want to do that and eventually if we get lucky we win a project yeah. and then we work together so it's a completely different uh, relationship that you build with a client on a bigger project acquired mm -hmm. by a public competition as opposed to the smaller one sure. which really as you said mm -hmm. they come to us mm -hmm. but based firstly on uh, again sharing uh, the, the common uh, knowledge or, or, or uh, well view to the to the world mm. uh, but I mean we so we have only few clients that they come to us mm -hmm. and those are mostly for the homes mm -hmm. we have two returning clients which is very very nice so first we did some office work for them let's say metal recycling plant uh -huh. uh, and the guy who owns metal recycling plant it's the owner of the chimney house uh, so basically it's yeah. recurring client and th that's kind mm -hmm. of a very nice yeah. thing and the same happened with the client of the karst compact karst house we did a, an experimental showroom in Trieste for him before and then he he came back to for us to, to design the house but some new clients very rarely they're very rarely people who would like to just explore you know yeah. so now we have uh, an Austrian couple who saw the karst house somewhere yeah. on internet yeah. and they wanted us to design the house in Trieste so in Italy so Slovene architects designing a house in Italy for Austrian clients right. so now we are in the process of building that and we are currently also just starting to design um, a, a house no southern from Seattle which we, there was there is a client from Los Angeles who saw the Maui house uh -huh. he came to Slovenia to meet us because this is very personal sure. if you you know entrust your future to a person's you need to somehow establish certain relationship yeah, yeah. yeah. so in that sense parallel to building an architectural project we're also building relationship mm. yeah mm. well that's a wonderful thing to say and if you can stay friends through the whole process yeah. <laughs> it can be testing but if it doesn't work out there is no project <laughs> hey look um you know we'd love to ask about so many other things and keep talking but I know that we're keeping you from cocktails and drinks <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. look just thank you very much for making yeah. time to talk uh, with us and enjoy the rest of your time here it's been great yeah. talking well, our pleasure thank you. thank you for inviting us <laughs> thank you for very, very nice questions <laughs> well that was Tina and Alyosha talking about their work um, and coming, coming to New Zealand and of course monomateriality which is something that was an unusual concept certainly to Art, uh, Art and myself Unusual, I think, to see it actually put so rigorously into practice, uh, but echoes of something that kind of goes back to how we started at school and how we were educated. You'll remember some of those early exercises you do at architecture school where you do look at one material and the way you explore it. If you remember the infamous rods and cubes mm. um, exercise, which befuddled me coming straight off a sheep and beef station and wondering what I was doing here. They're all in that vein about understand something and understand it all the way to mm. the end and they show this amazing slide in their talk which we talked about in the interview 
of a stone house where literally everything was stone. So the walls were stone, the roofing tiles were stone, and the gutters and the pipework was stone. Mm, so lovely. It was mad, wasn't mm. it incredible? And then they talk about honouring the material and learning how to use it like all the way to its conclusion, which I think is a really, really lovely idea. So it has this intellectual appeal, but it's not often you see a practitioner really work that idea so rigorously that's what kind of attract that's what I loved so much oh, me too and look I love the fact that the material could be the starting point for a, for a project we're so um, you know tied up with form here and then wrapping it in the skin but but this idea that hey actually the right response for this site for this context is brick mm. or stone what might a stone architecture look like? Mm. Uh, it's a lovely idea. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, buildings these days, um, particularly smaller buildings, which are carved up with, you know, four or five different materials. So it was a breath of fresh air to see just one thing carried right the way throughout a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they were and, pretty singularly beautiful houses, weren't they? Yeah. And the, the kind of houses that you can imagine living in, and they would impose themselves on you in the most beautiful way and require you to kind of live at a higher standard not in a tiring way but mm. you wouldn't want to leave a mess in a house like that because it just demanded that you treat it with respect yep yep well there was an economy to um the the plans and so on they all felt like uh, they were just the right amount nothing was superfluous but at the same time you could live with a lot of ease in those spaces yeah and and then they also i mean the they really covered some territory in their talk because they focused on these materials and the buildings they built. But then they had that whole series of the projects they run as teachers and they're extremely busy, they have professorships, they're really curious, they're teaching all the time. And they ran this whole module on what it might be like, uh, a sidestep from architecture into architecture and space and what it might be like to eat in space, what it might be like to <laughs> sleep in space and what it might be like to drink wine in space. Mm. And I just thought that was awesome. I thought that was so cool. There's so much kind of energy uh, and just plain imagination in those. Mm. They were great. And you could really feel the audience going through this kind of massive U-turn from looking at work critically and going, oh, houses and spaces. Yeah. And then suddenly there's this contraption where this person is suspended in like 50 tiny hammocks on each of their joints <laughs> and limbs to like sleep in zero gravity. Yeah. Which is such a lateral, you know, just deliberately pushing laterally into, you know, you don't lie on a flat bed, you might be suspended. What would that mean? I thought it was awesome. I really loved it. Yeah, I mean, the work, the work's very serious work, but it doesn't take itself too seriously mm. at the same time. Mm. And you can, that playfulness and uh, imagination really comes through, uh, I think, in all of their projects. I found uh, it really interesting. Oh, sorry, Tim. No, no, no. Go. I found it really interesting how their work was so resolutely contextual except for this cultural center of eu space technologies which was you know located yeah. in a small village and it was um silvery and cylindrical and like a spaceship in this kind of very traditional looking village yeah and it was a real outlier for me in their practice um and i would have kind of liked to keep talking to them about that because yeah. i don't know what kind of made them head in that direction would you either of you like to speculate on that Oh, we love a good speculation about people who we've finished talking to and aren't here anymore. Um, <laughs> um, I agree, it was an absolute outlier, and so much of the other stuff sat 
you know, so many of the people that appeared at conf- at conference ended up speaking about context in one way or another. Mm. You know, from Ma Yansong and his I won't say rejection, but he had a really assertive view about what what context was and wasn't. Mm. But I agree, the majority of um, of uh, Tina and Alyosha's work f- sat in a, a a much more generally harmonious kind of way. It was a super outlier, mm. and I guess. Should we speculate or should we guess? I don't know. I, I, I felt like... Um, the fun part you mentioned before felt like it crept into this building. This yeah. basic experiments that they yeah. were doing kind of informed this building perhaps. Yeah, yeah and, and there was exhibit, you know, there were footage of at least one exhibition where stuff was projected onto the walls rather than placed on the walls. And that was, I thought that was really cool as well. But yeah, you see these photos of it in context and it's what you would imagine in a little mountainous village like that. And it's really, it's like a... Um, I'm sort of drawing a kind of circular doodle. It's sort of this spiral, mm. this, this intertwined spiral, completely slick, absolutely slick. So there's that there's that single use of material idea mm. quite strongly there, but absolutely singular and standing aside for totally different from everything around it. But I mean, I think if you're given a brief like that to design something that relates to the stars and that you know um, is the I believe the spring springing point was a uh, Slovenian um, uh, earliest uh, Slovenian inventor who had talked about um, rocket and that's right, right. Yeah, that's right yeah. and, and proposed some um, uh, ideas about how this might happen yep. um, I mean, you're not going to design a traditional-looking building yeah. from the local village, are yeah. you, with, with that as a reference point? So perhaps with that context, the context of the brief, it, it actually starts to fit together. I think also we get to this idea that blending in and, and <clears throat> taking account of context and how you design has a kind of meekness to it. Yeah. And yet that response is like a super... That's the response of an assertive mind, mm. an assertive, confident mind to pull off something like that. It's actually, the real feat is suggesting something like that. Mm. And and having the, I mean, it replaced an existing facility. Mm. It must have had community buy-in to to actually agree to kind of shift the direction so much like that. Mm. We've had a silent point in the conversation. That's a good time to end. So that was our um, that was our catch up with Declava Gregorich, and I really encourage you to have a look at their work and um, read about them and what they say and think. It's fantastic. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks to the NZIA for assisting us and supporting us in getting these interviews. And next up is our final episode in the series where we'll be talking with um, Wolfram Putz. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Kakiti.